right, great. So let me introduce Joel Kurz. You guys are great. Thanks for participating with me. So Joel leads the Garden Church through teaching, vision casting, leadership development, and community involvement. He, prior to working to the Garden, he uh, graduated from Spurgeon College in 2003. Um, and he graduated with a BA in Biblical Studies. Uh, he worked on a pastoral staff for five years in Greensboro. And um, he's been in Baltimore City with his family since 2008. Now, Joel is married to his lovely wife, Jess Kurz, almost, I think, 15 years now. Don't quote me, but maybe quote me. They have four children, Jaden, Eden, Haddon, and Chapman, the four-month-old. Um, please um, welcome Joel Kurz to the stage. All right, thanks again uh, for being here and uh, look forward to a day with you uh, standing together on God's Word. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. While you turn there, let me pray before I begin. Father, we come before you recognizing that we are utterly dependent on your word. Uh, we are dependent on you speaking to us uh, through your word. God, I pray that as we uh, are in your word today, that we would experience Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Kenny, can we get the lights turned up a little bit? Thank you, sir. 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. Let's say that together. All scripture is what? Breathed out by God. The year before, the summer before my ninth grade year of high school, my family packed up into our Ford Aerostar and drove west. And being from Akron, Ohio, I had never seen a mountain in my life. By the time we got to Colorado Springs, Colorado, in our hotel room, I had seen a mountain. We opened up the windows of our hotel room and I remember a stunning view of Pikes Peak. And I stood there gazing through the window at this glorious view, which I, was, which I was beholding. John Piper, in his book, A Peculiar Glory, uses an analogy to explain just why he has spent his entire life gazing upon the scriptures. And what he, what he says is he likens the scriptures to a large window. And he says it's not so much the window itself that has captured my attention, but it's the view I get through the window. As I look through the window of Scripture and as I see this glorious picture of God. And he can't take his eyes off of it. Gazing upon the beauty of Pike's Peak and we just can't take our eyes off of it. Gazing upon what we see, this glorious view of God in Scripture, 
and it captivates us. Reading the Bible then is no more a chore than it is to look out the window and see Pike's Peak. Because what we see is something glorious. Now the question that I'm uh, asking today is this. Is what we see true? Is what we see true? My topic that I've been address, uh, uh, called to address is, is the Bible true? Or we could flip it and ask it another way. Does the Bible have errors? Now in a word, we're going to talk about the doctrine of inerrancy. Everybody say inerrancy. Inerrancy is defined by the the Jude 3 project as this. It says inerrancy means that the Bible in its original documents is without error regarding facts, names, dates, and any other revealed information. Inerrancy does not extend to the copies of the biblical manuscripts. Or maybe a shorter uh, definition which my professor once gave, he said, inerrancy means that what the Bible intends or teaches to be true actually is true. Looking at the text, what does 2 Timothy 3.16 say? All scripture is what? Is breathed out by God. Now we as finite people who are an erring people need an infinite unerring God to reveal a word to us without error if we are going to know him. Are you tracking with me? And today there are plenty of questions on whether or not the Bible contains error. Well, God didn't really direct the Israelites to slaughter the Canaanites, one might suggest. Well, I know the ancients believed that there was a God who created all things, but we know better now. Yeah, Paul here in this text, he, Paul was a Stoic, and he was influenced by Stoic philosophy, and so... Therefore, he's mistaken in his thinking here in this verse. Or maybe in some more subtle ways. I prefer, someone might say, Jesus' teaching over Paul's. I'm a red-letter Christian. Well, what's, the, what's wrong with all of that? What's the problem with all, all of that? Here's the problem. If one part of the picture is wrong, family, what does that say about the rest of the picture? I mean, if I'm looking through this window and you're telling me that what I'm seeing out of the, the right, uh, my right eye here is, is, is wrong, what does that mean about what I'm seeing out of my left eye? So what I want to do, I want to address this topic of inerrancy under three headings. Number one, the case for inerrancy. Number two, the challenges to inerrancy. And number three, the conviction of biblical inerrancy. First, the case for biblical 
inerrancy. I, I first heard the late theologian John Gerstner argue it this way. We must understand what we're saying when we deny biblical inerrancy. What we're saying is the Bible, which is the word of God, errs. Now let's break that down, all right? The Bible, we can kind of cross that word out because it's the word of God. So we're left with the word of God errs. And we can say, we can cross out the word, of the, the word because it's God's word. And what are we left with now? God errs. So if we deny biblical inerrancy, what we are saying is that God errs. So in order to make a case then for biblical inerrancy, what we have to show is first that God cannot err. That God doesn't make mistakes. And then secondly, that the Bible is, in fact, the word of God. So first, God cannot err. Looking at the text in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. Where do we first see God's breath in the Bible? Help me out, come on. Genesis, Genesis, chapter 2, verse Seven, which says, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, we know that Adam fell, but in this moment, was Adam a flawed creature? Absolutely not. How can God's breath create something that is inherently flawed? No, he was perfect. And so what we're saying then is, if we say that all scripture is God-breathed, we're saying that it cannot therefore be flawed if it comes from the breath of God. What that means then is, if it's all scripture, it means the very words are inspired. Yes, he used human authors in their personalities with their own grammar. But the very words themselves, the truth that is communicated through those words, cannot, friends, be flawed if it is breathed out by God. God does not err. There is no limit to God's knowledge. Psalm 147 says, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, simply puts it this way. God doesn't lie. God doesn't tell a lie. Or as John says in 1 John 1, 15, he says, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. So family, we can confidently sing with the psalmist in Psalm 147, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. God does not err. And even when we feel like he's made a mistake in our life, Romans 8.28 is still true. That all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his name. God won't make a mistake in your life because God does not make mistakes. Secondly, 
the scriptures are God's word. Montrell did a uh, uh, bang-up job last night explaining this very point. So I'm not going to repeat his message for you, but a few facts that I want to point out. First, Jesus believed that the scriptures are the word of God. He believed that what we call the scriptures are the word of God. So in Mark 12, Jesus quotes David and he says that David spoke God's words. In Matthew 19, Jesus quotes Moses and he attributes Moses' words to God. And he essentially says, God said that. In Luke chapter 16, verses 28 through 30, Jesus shows us that he is confident in the scriptures. He says that everything will come to pass. Mark 7, verses 9 through 13. Jesus places the scriptures as God's word over our traditions. Jesus says this, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So we've got our traditions over here. We've got the things that we enjoy in our various church cultures. We've got the tradition of the history of the church, what the church has believed down through the ages. What trumps tradition, friends? Jesus says what? Come on, help me out. I know it's early. The word of God does. So he places the scriptures as God's word over all tradition. My point is this. What Jesus says about the scriptures is spectacular. Jesus had a very high view of scripture. He did not think that this, is, this was just some really amazing man-made document. But he saw this as, yes, a human document, but also a divine document. Breathed out by God. God's very word. Jesus himself prophesied that the Holy Spirit would come to teach all things. And as the New Testament was written, it was received by the early church as scripture, which Montreal pointed out last night. My, my, my point is this. The scripture... The scriptures are the word of God. And God cannot err. So therefore, we can make our case that the scriptures, hopping over here, can't err. You see that? The Bible does not err. Does not make mistakes. So then what are the challenges to biblical inerrancy? I mean, if it's, if it's sort of that simple, why even address it? Let, let me talk through some of the challenges here. Let me begin with somewhat of a, a, a thought. If, if I were to say, tell you, last week, my family and I went to an apple farm, which is true. My family and I last week went to an apple farm. And you were to say, you know, I respect Joel. I think a lot of him. And I think what he means is that the warm and fuzzy feelings you get at an apple farm 
that he experienced those feelings when he was at home with his family last weekend. And then someone else says, no, I think he's using apple to reference the big apple, New York City. I think what he's actually saying is, is that his family went to New York last weekend. No, what, what you're doing is that you're calling me a liar. <laughs> because I told you I took my family to an apple farm last week. And it was pretty clear. It's what Luther calls the sensus literalis. The literal sense. Like, take me at my word. You see, the problem when we attack inerrancy is not with the one who's communicating through the scriptures. The problem when we attack inerrancy is actually ourselves. We're making a mistake in our own logic as we bring an attack to the scriptures. Norm Geisler came up with 18 common mistakes that uh, people make when they are accusing the Bible of error. And I don't have time to give you all 18, but I've tried to summarize them into four for your edification. Mistake number one that we make when we accuse the Bible of error. Mistake number one, assuming that the unexplainable is not explainable. We are assuming that the unexplainable is not explainable. Let me give you an example of that. It was once believed uh, by, by the quote-unquote intellectuals that, the, that Jericho never happened. You know the Battle of Jericho, seven times around, the walls came tumbling down? Well, th where's the evidence? We can't find, there is no city of Jericho. There's no proof of that. Now, it wasn't until the 1920s that uh, a city was found that looked a lot like Jericho. And it wasn't until many years after that that another theologian came along and, and studied all of the facts and said, wow, this looks like the biblical narrative of Jer Jericho. The, the, this is a city uh, in which the walls, uh, when the city fell, all came down at the same time, according to archaeological evidence. And the way that they fell would have actually allowed the conquering army to enter the city from all sides. And then there were unusual findings, such as uh, jars filled with grain that were not looted, which would have been common, but they were rather burned. Why would the conquering army burn grain instead of looting it? Well, this fits the biblical narrative of what happened at Jericho. And my point is, is if we just simply say, well, there's no evidence for a city. There's no evidence for the fact that Jericho uh, ever happened. So therefore, it means that it will never be explained. Just because something is currently unexplainable does not mean that it's not explainable. So some people say, well, Abraham did not exist. There's no evidence that Abraham existed. Well, Abraham was a nomad. He was wandering. He didn't leave traces of evidence behind. And if we find a broken pot, well, that could have been Abraham's, but we don't know that. We don't got the DNA. Just because something is unexplainable, are you tracking? Does not mean that it cannot be explained. The second mistake that people make when accusing the scripture of error is presuming the Bible guilty until proven innocent. Presuming the Bible guilty until proven innocent. We don't do that in culture. 
We don't do that in our daily living. Meaning, if you get a prescription medicine and, and uh, the, the doc puts on there, take, take two pills every day. Hmm. I don't think that's correct. I'm going to presume that's wrong unless he proves to me that that's correct. So I feel like I should take eight pills. We don't do that. We understand how signifiers work. So, for example, if someone were to come in here uh, right now and say, hey, there was a massive car accident on McCullough Street. We would assume that they're telling us the truth. They're giving us signifiers. They're saying, I just saw something. That's a signifier for us to believe what we're hearing. Or if someone comes along and says, hey, once upon a time, and then they tell a story about dragons. Now we know that they're using analogies. Now, that we, now we know that they're using metaphors. They're using various signifiers, uh, sig signifiers. Meaning we take people in their literal sense, in the way that they intend to communicate. And we don't just simply assume that they are wrong until they're proven right. But rather it's, it's the reverse. Mistake number three. Assuming that a summarized report is a false report. Assuming that a summarized report is a false report. So for example, were there two angels at the tomb or were there one? Well, Matthew and Mark mention one angel and Luke and John mention two angels. Well, if there were two angels, there had to have been one. And Matthew and Mark mention one. That doesn't conflict with those who mention two. Just simply because someone tells you part of the story doesn't mean that what they're telling you is wrong. Inerrancy allows for summaries of what took place. Inerrancy allows for the voice of what was said to be written down as opposed to the exact words verbatim. Let me give you another example of that in Matthew. Matthew says that John the Baptist, when he saw Christ, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Mark says that John said, you are the Christ. And he leaves it there. And Luke says, this is the Christ of God. Well, which one is correct? Well, the answer is, is they're all true. They're all saying a, a, a summarized statement capturing the voice of what John the Baptist stated. And the doctrine of inerrancy allows for writers to do that. For example, if, if we were to go out of here today and someone were to say, hey, what did Joel, uh, what did Joel preach about? And you were to say, Joel, Joel said that the Bible is true. Well, I said a lot more than that. But you gave a summary, which is what they expected. They didn't expect you to give a verbatim report of every single thing that I said. And actually, someone else might come out, and, they, and, and they, they're asked, what did Joel 
uh, speak on it, and they give a, a little different description of what I said. But the point is, is that both of those answers are inerrant. They're both true. So we, 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 we uh, cannot assume that a summarized report then means that we have a false report. Mistake number four that people make is forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical everyday language. We forget that the Bible uses non-technical everyday language. So, for example, in Joshua, Joshua chapter 10, verse 12, Joshua says the sun stood still. Well, in all reality, the earth would have stopped. But their experience was that the sun was standing still. Or uh, in Joshua uh, chapter 1, verse 15, Joshua says the sun is rising. Well, the sun doesn't actually technically rise, does it? So is that error? Well, if, if you were to tell me, hey, this morning the sun rose at 640. Tell me, is that a correct statement to make? Somebody help me out. Yes or no? The sun rose at 640. Yes, it is. Because what you're intending to communicate is true. Now, we don't, and even, listen, even meteorologists do this. Meteorologists don't say, the earth revolved to the point where the sun, we were able to see the sun at 640 this morning. <laughs> We have, we have everyday language and we understand what we mean by that. And the Bible does that. And the Bible, inerrancy I should say, the doctrine of inerrancy allows for ordinary everyday language to be used. Uh, as well as like round numbers for example. So if I were to say there are 622,000 people who live in Baltimore, you get what I'm saying. Even though technically there are 621,849. But round numbers communicate what I intend to communicate. Or hyperboles. The Bible uses hyperbole. So the four corners of the earth. Well, the, oh, the, the Bible's teaching that there are four corners. They believed in a flat earth. And the Bible teaches a flat earth. No, it doesn't. It's a hyperbole. It's just saying like all parts of the earth. From one end of the earth to the other end of the, the earth. We use that term. That's not technically true. There aren't one end and not, uh, another end. But, but the Bible uses non-technical, everyday language to make a point. And inerrancy, the doctrine of inerrancy, allows for that. I mean, I could go on with a, a lot of uh, other uh, analogies and, and, and examples. But the point I'm trying to make is this. The Bible has never ever by one person proven to have error. Every time someone comes with, a, uh, with an announcement that there is error in the scriptures, the mistake is not actually in the scriptures, but the mistake is in the logic of the person who is making that accusation. But lastly, as I close, let me talk to you about the conviction of inerrancy. The conviction of Inerrancy. A couple years ago, Carter, who gave a testimony last night, one of his friends was shot. A guy that we both knew in the community. I go down there, shock trauma, University of Maryland, and I have my Bible with me, and I'm hoping to share a verse with the family whose son is, is about to die. Now, in that moment, 
I don't have time to pull out all of my notes and remind myself whether or not the Bible is true. In that moment, I have to either know that the Bible is true or not. How do we have a conviction of inerrancy? Well, at the end of the day, the issue of inerrancy is not about obscure facts or numbers or, or, or names. But at the end of the day, the conviction of inerrancy is about the glory of God as revealed in Scripture. Is the Bible a man-made document with errors? Is the Bible an ancient text that has been helpful for some weak people but is filled with error? Or is the Bible a true witness to the redemptive activity of God in the world? And his call for the new humanity. How do we know that? In what way can we gaze out this window of Scripture and see the glory of God and just know that it's true? When I'm about to open the Bible and share a Bible verse with a family who's weeping over their lost son, how do, in that moment, how do I know that it's true? Because we don't have time to go back to our notes from today and remind ourselves. Here's how we know. The scriptures self-authenticate. The Holy Spirit testifies to us when we read this text and says, yes, this is true. This is true. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, gave us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we might know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Saints, the scriptures are the word of God. God cannot err. The scriptures make no mistakes. And when we, as Holy Spirit-filled people, read the word of God, the Spirit says yes. And we know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we are able to spend in your word. We thank you, God, for revealing to us a revelation without error so that we, a people who make a lot of mistakes, might know an inerrant wonderful, magnificent, magnificent eternal God. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the purpose of um, just this next
five to ten minutes is just to go further into the sermon. So um, we want you guys to feel free to interact with the speakers personally and ask all the questions that you may think of as a result of just um, the message that was just shared. Uh, but we're just going to ask uh, Joel a couple questions um, in regards to inerrancy. So I'm going to go for question one. All right. It's been argued um, that for some, since human language is man-made, uh, language in and of itself is corrupt and cannot fully convey God's truth. Uh, could you speak to what seems like some of the holes in human language? Can you speak further? Sure. So uh, if, if uh, the grammar is off, uh, if, if the New Testament writers use bad grammar, um, does that then mean that, uh, therefore, that there are errors in the scripture? Um, well, the answer is absolutely not. Uh, the claim of inerrancy does not claim that, um, uh, that the grammar is inerrant, but rather the truth that is communicated through the form is inerrant. Um, secondly, and I've heard a number of people make this accusation before, language is too limited in order to communicate God's truth. Well, the reality is, is that God is the first being who spoke. And God, therefore, gave us language for what purpose? So that we might know him, correct? And so, therefore, language is the God-given tool to us uh, uh, for his own revelation. So, therefore, language is, a, uh, is, is the venue that God would use. And so that's why he gave us then a book with words, is because that God, God wants to use and has always intended to use language uh, to convey his, his, uh, his glory to us. Thank God for that. Uh, another claim is that inerrancy is a modern Western idea um, uh, that's new to Christianity. And so those who insist on inerrancy uh, might seem to be divisive to the church. So could you speak to whether or not that's true mm -hmm. or not? So Norm, Norm Geisler says that uh, if inerrancy is divisive, it's not actually those who are clinging to inerrancy that's divisive, it's actually those who reject inerrancy that are being divisive. Because the church has always held to the fact that the Bible is true. So I was just this morning actually reading, um, if you go to Norm Geisler's website, Defending Inerrancy, Dot com, I believe it is. Uh, on there, he has a um, church history of uh, going all the way back to, uh, to, to the fir very first generation of Christians who claimed that the Bible is true and has no error. All the way through Augustine, through Martin Luther, until today. And uh, so what, when we are talking about inerrancy as a church, we're talking about something that the church has always believed. This is me being encouraged. <laughs> okay. So uh, you um, spoke so confidently about God not being an error. God never errs, right? Um, the truth of inerrancy. It seems so clear to you as you were proclaiming it to, to us. Why do you think that there's still um, some that say, why, why, why err? You spoke with it so with such confidence. Why do you think that? Um, there seems to be so much um, conversation about. Sin. <laughs> Next question. 
No, I, th I really think sin is the answer to that question. So why, why do people reject inerrancy? Um, the Bible is clear on a lot of stuff where our culture is going the opposite direction. And um, I think iner those who attack inerrancy are often well-meaning Christians who are trying to do apologetics, but they're doing it in a bad way. What I mean by that is, let's say that you, um, uh, you have a friend who says, hey, um, I have always had same-sex attraction. I'm giving into that, and I'm getting into a, re a, a relationship with another person of the same gender. And therefore, I'm leaving the church, and I'm leaving Christianity. Our temptation now is to come along and say, well, you don't have to do that. Because there's actually ways to read the Bible which would allow for whatever you want to do with your life. There's actually, actually ways that we can kind of fit the Bible around culture. And how do we do that? Well, we do that through denying inerrancy. We do that through saying the Bible is not 100% correct in some areas. They were mistaken. They were too culturally influenced, whatever that might be. But what I'm saying is, are you guys tracking with me? What I'm saying is, is that I think a lot of the, uh, the attacks against inerrancy just simply come from Christians who are trying to do apologetics, but they're doing it very poorly. And they're just simply saying the Bible's wrong. You don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, just throw out parts of it. Now, all that to say then, I, think it's, I do think it's sin. I think we, uh, when the Bible confronts us, confronts the core of, of who we are in some ways, um, we have to either submit to the scriptures or deny it. And so as long as there's sin in the world, there's going to be attacks against inerrancy. Uh, Montreal yesterday highlighted um, some of the misconceptions uh, that people kind of struggle with in um, trusting the Bible, right? He, he highlighted even some misconceptions from different cultures, right? So we are in this generation now, um, and you said yesterday, uh, every generation has their own attack against, against Scripture. Uh, what do you think uh, is your main concern for the church today in terms of inerrancy? Yeah, I think two things. One that Montrell uh, hit last night, which is you know who really hit it? Not to say you didn't, Montrell. I'm just rethinking what, where I was going with that. Carde, wherever Carde is at in his testimony, Carde said that his issues with the Bible were unfounded. They, they it was stuff that he was hearing on YouTube. It was stuff that he was, you know, having conversations while he was smoking a lot of weed with his friends. And it was just sort of unfounded critiques against the scriptures. One of my biggest concerns is just anti-intellectualism to some degree. Where we, where we don't take the time, like Carter then did, to actually read the Bible. And to examine these claims. It's so easy to just say, well, it's wrong, I believe it. One thing I always tell my interns is, when someone says there are errors in the Bible... I always tell them to say, what errors? Can you show me? Because, go ahead. Which error, which error are you talking about? That's what, I, that's what we ought to do. Oh, I don't believe the Bible. There's mistakes in there. 
just hand him the Bible, please. <laughs> and I guarantee you, it's, it's, a, it's mistaken their own logic. And so that's one of my biggest concerns. That's probably with culture as a whole is, and, and, and that's just our, it's our, Romans want hatred for God. But secondly, I, your question was about the church. Um, my concern in the church, for the church, for us, is that we would claim inerrancy, that we would defend inerrancy, but we would live our lives as if the Bible is not true. That we would not cling to the truth of Scripture in that moment when temptation strikes. That we would argue with somebody until we're red in the face about the truth of inerrancy and then go and speak to our wife the way we just spoke to her. <laughs> I think that's my biggest concern for, the, for, for us. For us. And secondly, um, thirdly, fourthly, I don't know where I'm at. It's a mini sermon. It's okay. That would be my concern for those who cling to inerrancy. And then I have a general concern for the church as the church tries to morph. So we got the cultural issue over here, all right, as the church tries to morph with culture and create a version of Christianity and a version of the Bible that is not offensive to culture. If we're trying to get likes on our Facebook posts from the culture, we're going to at some point deny, iner or deny inerrancy. Hard but honest saying. Would you pray for us in our application in believing um, that the Bible is inerrant? Father, we uh, thank you once again for this time. We do pray that we would believe that your word is true and that we would apply it to our lives. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen.